And Lord, we join Pastor Justin in praying for those in our church family that are sick, those that um, have lost friends and loved ones even in the last couple of weeks. Father, we're mindful of the pain that is being felt in this room right now. And we ask in the name of Jesus that you would be our strength and help us as we talk about prophecy, help us to be able to look ahead and understand that this is not the end. We pray for the grace of the Holy Spirit to move with comfort and also, Lord, move with conviction so that we might align ourselves more thoroughly and, <clears throat> excuse me, and more completely with the purposes and the plans of God. We ask for your help and we give you thanks for your excellent care. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Years ago, years ago, um, I heard Adrian Rogers preach a message um, about nonprofit churches. And it was not non P R O F I T, it was P R O P H E T. He said, uh, churches that have lost an understanding of prophets and prophecy are churches that are missing what God wants to do because they don't understand the circumstances around them. And he said, one of the things that is so important for churches to do is to learn how to profit from prophecy. So I borrowed that title and I wanted to talk about some things that are on my heart today. Um, the outline I'm going to follow roughly, um, because of being out of town, I wrote the outline a couple of weeks ago knowing what I was going to preach. But as I prayed over it, my heart has shifted a little bit. Um, so this will get you from beginning to end. You just may say, what does this mean? Nothing today. Uh, we'll, we'll cover some other stuff later. But um, I, I want to read the first few verses of Revelation. We're not going to preach through Revelation today or anything like that. Um, uh, but I do want you to understand the tone that was being set and the value of prophecy. Okay, Revelation 1, verses 1 through 3. This is the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Now, we got to stop and establish right here. God's estimation of time is frequently different than our own. He said, um, this must soon take place. And that, this is nearly a 2,000-year-old statement. But it's a reminder, uh, a reminder that God lives outside of time. And when you consider eternity, 2,000 years is not long at all. Uh, when you talk about the culmination of all things. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Now, let me interrupt myself again here. I don't think that there is some mystical thing that revelation has to be read aloud to be understood. I think the meaning of this, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, is connected with those that are, who hear it and take it to heart are blessed. I think what the angel was saying to John and what John was communicating 
is that this is not something that should be neglected. It should be read aloud. It could, should be a community endeavor. And when it is a part of the community, when it's a part of the community, um, we, are, we are blessed to hear it and embrace it and to take it to heart. We're in a time that um, there's very little preaching from the book of Revelation. It's like I said a few weeks ago, to some churches, Genesis is myth and Revelation is mystery. And so they stay away from Genesis. And as I said, forgive me for repeating myself, but once you stay away from Genesis and you lose the idea of God being the creator and that we are the special object of his creation, the moment you reach the point that the Tennessee snail darter means as much to you as a human life, you have missed the purposes and plans of God. And so murder is not that big a deal. The abortion of babies is not that big a deal. The enemy wants you to believe that it's myth so that he can remove the fear of God in our regard to life. Um, I, I'm, and I'm speaking as a prophetic pastor today. I think one of the things we've got to recover, God did something phenomenal in our church uh, in February of 2020. Over a year ago, we spent two Sundays on dealing with abortion. We brought help from the outside, resources from the outside. And I really, before God, felt that we turned a corner in our battle for life on those two Sundays. But I want to tell you, I think most of the ground we gained was lost when COVID virus occurred and we got distracted. I'm talking about our church. We got distracted from the message of life by so many things that were going on. And I'm, I don't know what to do except, you know, I, I was praying this week and I said, Lord, do we need to go back and do those two Sundays again? I don't know, but I know um, that now, now I'm not talking about our church. I'm talking about the, the Western church, the American church in general. I never thought it would be so easy to dislodge the church in America. I never thought it would be so easy to shift people into rage and anger and intolerance and to absolutely lose focus and to place so many gods above the true and the living God. And I'm here to tell you, I don't think even a fourth of the churches in America have stayed true to their calling and their purpose and we are pressured by political correctness. We're pressured by the agenda of the world. We're pressured by rage. We're pressured by racism. We're pressured by political views. And we have got our hands full getting back to the place that God intends for the church to be. Now, I think our church has done a pretty good job of doing that. I think we've done a good job of staying on track but I also believe that um, our church, and I don't know how to say this without sounding like I'm patting you on the back, but I am patting you on the back. I think this church is a part of the remnant. I think this church is a church that has stayed true. Not everybody in the church, some have left, some have, are still walking in rage and anger, and, and they have forgotten that the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. We've got to get back into alignment with the word of the Spirit, the mind of the Spirit. I know there are challenges. I know there are challenges, but when Judah was brought back from Babylonian captivity and they were told to rebuild the temple of God first and then rebuild the walls, 
They had plans. I mean, Nehemiah laid out some great plans for the walls. The, the, the plans for the temple were laid out, but it got bogged down. And the people had plans. The people had strategy. And they said, this is what we were, and we've got to get back to that. But God had something else in mind. And they, the people said, it's, it's never going to happen. We're never going to get the temple built. They would say later, we'll never get the walls built. And the message that the prophet Zechariah brought back to the people of God, the remnant that had been brought back after the years of judgment in Babylon, this is what he said. You must remember that it is not by your might, it is not by your power, we would say it is not by your strategy, it is not by your programs, but the temple will be built, the walls will be built, the city will be restored one way, and that is by my spirit, says the Lord. And loved ones, I know that I'm repeating myself. Um, I think of a missionary friend of mine that uh, had a phenomenal church in Central America. Somebody asked him one time, when did things turn? When, when did the church begin to grow? When did revival come to the church? This was back in the either 60s or 70s. He said, well, God gave me a message and I preached the message. And I thought, there's got to be more to it than that. He said, I preached it every week until they started doing it. He, he said, I preached it, if I'm remembering correctly, he said, I preached it nine weeks, the same message, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. He said, and then they began to catch on. He said, so I said, okay, Lord, what do we do now? And he said, keep preaching till the others catch on. And basically, if I'm remembering correctly, it was like four or six months. It was just the same message over and over again. Listen to me now. Don't worry. Again, don't worry about the outline. This was, this was I, I'm giving you a big platter, but we're only getting certain dishes today. Um, but in the, um, I think I wrote it down. Yes, yeah, Second Chronicles 26, it's talking about Jehoshaphat and the ministry of Jehoshaphat. And when it's summarizing its life, his life, it's phenomenal. It says, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. And you're just amazed at what happened during the life and the reign of, of Jehoshaphat. And then it says, except for this. He says, this did not happen. And you want to say Jehoshaphat failed. He did, he, you know, he got seven out of eight, but he failed on one. But this is what the scripture says. It says, this did not happen. And it had to do with pulling down idols. It says, this did not happen because the people, in spite of what God was doing, the people had not prepared their heart to walk fully in repentance. So what God is challenging me with is that he wants to do some incredible things in my life. He wants to do some incredible things in the church. I believe God wants to do some incredible things in your life. But we've got to learn two things. It is not by might nor power, but it's by his spirit. And it, the, the degree of our success hinges on the degree of our obedience. I tell you, the... the um, this was a pastor in another state, not anyone here, but they said, and he, he's leaving his church. He's resigning after years of ministry, decades of ministry. He said, I just can't take it anymore. I said, I said, I understand it's a tough time. I said, it's a tough time for America and it's a tough time for pastors. What's going on? He said, 
The Bible says, if we will, uh, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. He said, I don't know of a time that I've, my people have prayed more than in 2020. We prayed for the virus to be driven from the land. We prayed for certain things to happen in government. He went on and on. And he said, we prayed like we've never prayed before. I said, I agree. I don't know of a time in my life. I really don't. I don't know of a time in my life that the church prayed like she prayed in 2020. People that have never prayed consistently before were praying. People that didn't have a regular prayer life developed a regular prayer life. I am amazed at the outpouring of prayer in 2020. I said, I agree with you. And I said, what, what's troubling you? He said, my prayers weren't answered. He said, and I'll tell you something else that bothers me. The prophets that have given us direction and help for decades, they were all wrong. They were wrong about the election. They were wrong about this. They were wrong about the other. And he said, I can't take it anymore. I can't lead a church if I don't think I can trust the prayers and the prophets. And I said, and he was a good enough friend, I could say this. Um, I said, I think the problem is we trusted the prophets instead of the prophets. I think we've, we've, we, have a, we have a culture of, of, of uh, popularity and we put such incredible pressure on prophetic ministries. They have to come up with thus saith the Lord. And they have to make bolder and bolder and, uh, and, and uh, predictions and statements. And loved ones, I don't think we had an epidemic of false prophets. I think we had an epidemic of true prophets that spoke out of their own spirit. And I think that has poisoned the prophetic well in the church. And I believe just like pastors, pastors had to go through this in the nineties and the early two thousands. There was a, there was a purging. There was a, there was a drive to repentance for 20 years where pastors were being called back to preaching the whole counsel of God and, and to, and to being honest men and women of integrity before the Lord. And what we have found is that not every pastor has done that. Uh, and, and we have found, listen, I'll tell you what we found. We have found churches with divided hearts getting pastors with divided hearts. And we found churches with true hearts getting pastors with true hearts. And what has happened is God has performed a judgment. Judgment begins in the house of God. And that's why many of our churches, I'd say upwards of 75%, just reading their statements, reading their positions theologically. I'd say 75% of the churches have chosen a wrong path. They may do good things. They may have good ministries, but they are saying it's by might, it's by power. But there's a remnant that are saying it's only by the Spirit. And loved ones, no matter what it costs us, we better stay on our face and understand that it's by the Spirit of God that things happen. Not by the might of man, not by wonderful programs and so forth. We have, we elevated prophets. And I tell you what many prophets have done. Some prophets have said, hey, I, 
one I think of in particular, he said, we missed it. I think I prophesied out of my own spirit. I prophesied out of my own heart. I prophesied what I wanted to see. But there are others that are doubled down. They, they've doubled down. They're saying, no, this is what God told me and this is it. And, and the election was stolen or whatever it was. But the problem with that mindset, they, they think they're saying, you know, I'm just going to believe God anyway. The problem is that now we have a God who prophesies, but it can be distorted by the enemy. It can be stolen by the enemy. God can be overruled by the enemy or God is now giving us prophecies that can't be depended on because he's saying one thing and doing something else. And loved ones, I, I know this is not going to be popular and I invite every one of you to have a problem with this to see Justin. But no, I, I don't. I don't do that at all. But I, I want you to understand we are at a point, it's called growing up. And I think that God is purifying our prayer ministries by teaching us that victory doesn't come when we bombard heaven with prayers for what we want. And he's judging the prophetic ministry. You know, somebody said, well, just, you know, give the prophets a break. They're good men and women. I believe they are. I'm not wanting to criticize the prophetic community at all. But I am saying this, until the prophetic community comes to grips with some issues that God is dealing with, the prophetic community will continue to be laid aside. And I wanna tell you what I truly believe. I believe that in the next six to nine months, this issue with the prophetic community will be resolved because we need the prophetic community as we go forward. We need to hear from those that God is speaking to and has anointed their life. But it's not going to come forth if they insist on their own, if they insist on prophesying from their own spirit or their own heart. Some of their prophecies are good things. Some of their prophecies are, are, are things to be desired. But we've got to get back to understanding that declaration we hear that word a lot, declaration. Declaration is not me creating a reality. Declaration is about me proclaiming the word of the Lord. And we've lost that. We've lost that. Um, I, I can remember four times. Uh, I, I, I didn't want to go through my journal and try to look it up. <laughs> but four times during 2020, um, I was told, believe, thank you, Justin. I was told, you know, reminded, Pastor, you know, God has told us he's going to do this, that, or the other. And um, we, we, we believe that we've heard from the Lord. What do you think? And I said, well, I, I said, quite frankly, I hope you're right. And, and I said, I don't disagree that that's what I prefer. But I'm going to tell you, that's not what God is speaking to my heart. I said, I think the election is still up in the air. I think a lot is still up in the air. And I said, and I'll tell you why, because the Lord said, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray, and we did that masterfully, and turn from their wicked ways. I don't think we did that masterfully. We prayed and prophesied to our own lust. We prayed and prophesied to our own desire. Now, don't get mad at me saying, Pastor, I didn't do that. Well, then I'm not talking to you, am I? <laughs> Just calm down. Calm down. Go get a cup of coffee. I'm not talking to you if you didn't do that. 
But if you did, and if you're opening your heart to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, this might be a time for you to evaluate. I believe in prayer. I believe that some things happen when we pray that do not happen if we do not pray. And one of the things we did right in 2020 is the church of the living God turned to prayer like I don't think they've ever turned to prayer in my lifetime. I am amazed at who prayed and how much they prayed. But now if we, the next thing on the agenda is for us to learn that sometimes we don't get what we want because we pray amiss. It doesn't mean we're praying for the wrong thing. You guys with me? But there's something wrong in our heart. We pray, James says, according to our lust so that we can have things just piled on. And and we think surely what is comfortable must be the will of God. Because God wants us to be, you know, fat and healthy and wealthy and wise. So we pray for good things. But loved ones, sometimes God takes you through the valley of the shadow of death. The psalmist said this, Lord, you have ripped our back open with furrows. The enemy has plowed our back open with the plow of judgment. And it doesn't doesn't mean they understood it. Some of the greatest psalms written are just the same thing over and over again. How long, O Lord? How long? How long? How long? Why me? Why me? Why us? Why my family? Why now? Loved ones, that's why I encourage you to read through the book of Psalms at least six or seven times a year. Get our book, The The Journey Through the Psalms. It'll help you do that easily. It'll categorize the Psalms by category and and I encourage you to get that. Um, But we are are being grown up. We are being weaned from this world. We are being weaned from the bottle of comfort and we are learning what disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ have learned and known and walked through for 2000 years. I want to tell you the story of the church is not one of American prosperity. The story of church history is not one of carefree existence where we name it and claim it and demand our rights because of who we are. The church has been pushed to the brink of extinction more than once, but their faith has remained strong. Their faith has remained rooted. Their faith has remained grounded. And God is doing that for you. I believe that God is in the business of reconfirming, refreshing, and restoring the prophetic ministry, the prayer ministry. And loved ones, you can do one of two things. You can just double down and say, well, God said it, man messed it up. Loved ones, have you read the Bible? When has man ever been able to to mess up what God said he's going to do? Oh, now there are conditional prophecies, I know. And they didn't happen because man didn't keep his side of the deal. But uh, I mean, there there was that phrase, thus saith God. That was used a lot. And I want to tell you on the thus saith God's, I'm going to do this uh, and no man can stop it. We need to understand that nobody can stop the purposes and the plans of God. But we need to get back to the place where we understand not only prophecy sounding declarations, but we need to understand the heart of God. I'm going to make it very simple. We need to get back to the Bible 
And I think the only way that a prophetic ministry will thrive is that if we have a solid foundation from Scripture, you're prone. Don't look at SESL students right now. This was years and years ago. But one of the SESL students said, I don't understand why I have to learn all this Old Testament because I was Old Testament professor and, and um, Old Testament is a chunk. It's, it's like eating an extra large Domino's pizza in one bite. I mean, it, it's huge. And this is what that person said. They said, I have the spirit of God. God has told me this. God's told me that. God has directed my life through prophetic words. All due respect, pastor, I don't even need the Bible because God speaks to me. And, and I understood that student's affinity for the word and I, I commended them, for, I mean, for the, the spirit. But loved ones, the written word of God is what keeps us on track. Without the written word of God, you have no way to discern what you're hearing. You have no way of judging it. You and I aren't good enough to try to make spiritual decisions apart from the written word of God. And the, the true prophecy does not contradict. Uh, true prophecy will always flow on the same tracks. And we have gotten ourselves into a mindset where we will spend so much time going to Pastor Papoofnik to hear his prophetic word and Sister Whatever to hear her prophetic word. And we get so enraged with the things that we read and the things that we hear. And we are the most carnal generation of Christians I've known in my lifetime. Because we're not in the book, we're in their book. We're on their website. Uh, you know, I tell people, get off the web, get off the web, unless it's a legitimate place that you're going. You're right, pastor. I need to get off the web. I need to get off the web. And then they'll send me a half dozen sites to go through and I can't do it. I can't afford the blood pressure medicine that I need <laughs> to take listening to these people. You say, but, it, but they're using Bible verses. Loved ones, when you read, everybody Okay. Okay, when you read the book of Jeremiah, I want to tell you, the prophets that fought against Jeremiah, the prophets that got Jeremiah thrown into jail, when you read their prophecy, they spoke the word of God. Their prophecies were powerful. Their prophecies were rich. But here's the problem. They spoke God's blessings but when you read the promises in their context, those prophecies were given to people who were obeying God, who were walking in obedience to Him and walking in purity of heart. And we have a whole church world out there that wants to claim the blessing of God whether or not they're living a life for God. I'm going to tell you, just because somebody can give you a chapter and verse, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you know the word of God, you not only know the prophecy, but you understand the context of that prophecy. You understand the atmosphere in which that prophecy was given. No, you read the enemies of Jeremiah, they were condemned by God and they spoke, thus saith the Lord, real verses. But the problem is they ignored the heart of God. They ignored the context of God. Now, I want to, uh, let, me, let me say this. And then, 
Well, I'm still on Rocky Mountain time, so it's just now nine o'clock. Two of the strangest passages in the New Testament. I mean, they're, they're truly strange. Not that they're complex and can't be understood. You would just think, why would they even need to be said? Here's the first one. Forbid not to speak in tongues. Every church in the New Testament was a Pentecostal church. Every church was a Pentecostal church. Uh, you know, a lot of times cessationists and others say that we're violating the, the Word of God trying to interpret the New Testament from a Pentecostal perspective. Of course we are. They were all Pentecostals. Every one of them spoke in tongues. Every church was a church that had a manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit. So why would he say forbid to, not to speak in tongues? Because Paul knew that every pastor, every church leader faced this issue. There were people that would take the incredible gift of God and use it in silly ways. Use it in silly ways and disruptive ways. One of the biggest issues that I ever had to deal with, I mean, as far as the fallout from it, is um, I, I was at a church where every Sunday, and we believe in messages and tongues and interpretations. At this church, we, we, we find that it's better uh, because of logistics, the size of the congregation, to happen in smaller settings and smaller groups. But we're not, we're not forbidding it, and it's, it's welcome here. It, it, it really is. But every Sunday, this guy would give a message in tongues and this lady would give an interpretation in tongues. And I, I want to tell you about, I don't think I'm exaggerating, about 85% of the time it was nothing. I mean, God is good. Well, yeah. What, what else you got? You know, God's mad at you if you're in sin. Well, yeah. Okay. But it was totally unproductive and it got to the point, I won't call their name, but we, some of us referred to it as, well, we'll use some other people, as the uh, Angela and Justin show. I mean, they just did it every week in church. And I had to deal with that. And you wouldn't believe the number of people that said, don't quench the spirit. Don't forbid to speak in tongues. But the reason Paul had to write that is that in a Pentecostal church that is tapped into the spirit of God, he, he realized he was always going to have people that never listened to that verse that said the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. And so it led to abuse. So that makes sense. I understand now after 40 years of pastoring, 45 years of pastoring, I understand why he said don't forbid to speak in tongues. It's easier to say no. The other one that's so strange is despise not prophesying. Now despise You've heard, I mean, this is a popular teaching. You know, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. The idea of love and despise, it doesn't always mean an aggressive hatred. It means a lessening, a marginalization, a not taking seriously. When, and when God said, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, I know that Calvinists take that to mean one was chosen, one was not this one in the sovereignty of God was loved. This one in the sovereignty of God was hated. We don't believe that's what that means. We do believe this. There will be people that are chosen by the Lord because of their response to be uh, recipients of certain things that other people will not be recipients of because they are marginalized. They are set aside because of their carnality. Jacob was called a holy man, but he had issues 
He got them worked out by the time he was in his early hundreds. He got them worked out pretty good. But Esau was called a profane man. Now you read the story. I think I'd have liked Esau a lot more than Jacob. I, you know, I, I think Jacob was in it for himself in so many levels. Esau was at least a good guy, you know. I mean, he really was. You read the story. He's a good guy. But his problem was he was a profane man. And what that means is he did not regard the things of God highly. He was willing to give away his birthright. He was willing to give away the blessing. Um, he, he, nothing that was sacred meant anything to him. And therefore, because he hated spiritual things, God said, I hate him. Which being interpreted as because he lessened the value of spiritual things, God said, I will lessen my value of you. Your actions will stop the hand of God. Now that's what he was saying about prophecy. He said, despise not prophesying. The problem wasn't that they said the age of prophecy had passed. The problem was not that they said God can't give a word today. We know from the book of Acts. You guys still with me? We know from the book of Acts that Agabus prophesied predictively. He talked about the famine that was coming to Jerusalem. He prophesied accurately what was going to happen to Paul when he went to Jerusalem. It it happened in phases, but it was accurate. Um, They knew that God could give prophetic insight to our behavior and to the future. But this is what he said when he says, don't despise prophesying. He says, prophesying is messy. The chitty version. Prophesying is messy. And there are people that are learning. Uh, People do this when they interpret messages in tongues a lot of times. People do this when they prophesy. They speak what God gives them, but it may only be two sentences and you're not supposed to quit after two sentences. So you stop flowing in the spirit and you dip into your own spirit or you interpret what God gave you, and it gets messy. It gets incredibly messy. And he said, you have one of two options. You can just embrace it all and say, well, if God said it, we got to believe it. Or you can learn that we must be sure that what we are responding to is a genuine prophetic word. I started to say it happened like four times. The, 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 People were saying, you know, this is what we believe God is showing us. And I said, you may be right. I said, I don't know. I said, that's just not what God is showing me. They said, is God showing you this? I said, no, he's not showing me that. Uh, I I said, what I feel is that he's still waiting to see how his church turns. And I don't know how the election is going to go. And four times somebody went to the story in 2 Chronicles um, or, or 2 Kings 7 or 2 Chronicles 20. And I heard it over and over again. You've got to believe the prophets. Believe his prophets. Wow, that's cold water. (laughs) Believe the prophets and you'll prosper. And pastor, if you don't believe the prophets, you're not going to prosper. You've got to believe the prophets. And my response was, no, I don't. I've got to believe a prophet when a prophet speaks the word of the Lord. Some of you were in absolute fear to say, I don't know about that. Because some spiritual bully said, you got to believe the prophets if you're going to prosper. But you were believing prophets that were speaking out of their own spirit instead of the spirit of God. 
And I want to tell you, I've, I've got some prophetic leanings myself. And a true prophet is not afraid for somebody to look him in the eye and say, tell me what's going on. You find a prophet or a prophetess and they can't handle criticism or they can't handle questions, that's the first indicator you need to move in another direction. They make prophecies and, and they go beyond what God has told them and they leave dead bodies all over the church and pastors have to fix them. This is amazing. More than once, the story of Elisha, when Samaria was under siege, there was no water, there was no food. And Elisha said, by this time tomorrow, everything's going to be back to normal. Everything you need to eat and drink will be given. And somebody said, if God opened the windows of heaven, such a thing could not happen. And the prophet said, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not partake of it. And the next day, the man in the rush for food was trampled to death. He saw the fulfillment of prophecy that he said couldn't happen, and he did not partake of it because he was killed in the stampede. I had that prophesied over me about four times, that I would die or the church would die because I dared to defy the words of the prophets. Loved ones, I... I, I, to my knowledge, and I pray the grace of God, I've never defied a true prophecy from the Lord. But you and I have to grow up. The church in America has to grow up. Don't be afraid of bully prophets, but don't throw prophecy out the window. Our job over the next six to nine months is to restore health to the prophetic community because I'm telling you, this mess is not over. COVID is not over. Afghanistan is not over. Illegal aliens invading our southern border is not over. Now, wh whatever your political view, it's not over. And we are going to need the prophetic word in our churches like never before. But we've got to let go of our anger. We've got to let go of our rage. We've got to let go of our wrath. God is weaning. That's why you're so mad with everything from the police force to the Democratic Party or from Donald Trump to whatever is on the other side. You're angry with everything because you've been done wrong. You've been hurt. That's not up for debate. But you have decided that it's by might and power I will fix this. And God is making you totally helpless so that you'll learn it's only by a spirit. Only by a spirit. You say, well, I just feel if we could get so-and-so as president, our problems would be solved. Jesus? Yeah, Jesus. Well, let me tell you four things that will result if you really are walking in alignment with prophecy. Now, understand, I realize there is what I call external prophecy, where someone says, you know, the Lord says this. Or, and, and I know that a lot of damage is done by people saying, thus saith the Lord, uh, adding it on to their, to their prophecies. I don't think that's wise. I don't know of many people 
I can count them on one hand, that walk with that level of anointing that when they say, thus saith the Lord, I believe it. Yeah. I, I mean, I can, I, can, I can count them on one hand and still poke you in the eye, you know, <laughs> with the fingers left over. Um, now, some have said we should never say that. And I don't think that's right. I, I, I agree with where they're trying to go. You know, they say, well, you know, if, if, if it's really the Lord, you don't have to say that. Well, that could be said of the Old Testament prophets too. If it was really the Lord, they didn't have to say, thus saith the Lord. The New Testament understood that Agabus spoke by the Spirit. He said these things by the Spirit. I don't think a problem is thus saith the Lord. I think a problem is we don't have the authority or the right to say that most of the time. And uh, we, we need to be careful because it, sometimes prophecy expresses the desire of God, but it's not a prediction of what will happen. Because prophecy is foretelling, but it's also forthtelling. Prophecy, in other words, can make a prediction like Agabus did, but sometimes, and I would say probably most of the time, prophecy expresses either an encouragement or a confirmation or, or it, it ex expresses the desire of God. And loved ones, we are never commanded to put the prophetic gift that an individual walks in on the same level as biblical prophecy. So step number one, we've got to get back to biblical prophecy. We've got to let that be our foundation. Um, you know, we, we, we've abandoned the book of Revelation because we say, you know, Genesis is myth. Revelation is mystery. We can't understand it. So proud of Bella teaching the kids the book of Revelation. I really am. And it's done in such a way that your kids aren't going to come home and dig a basement, you know, and, and, and hide for the rest of their lives. The book of Revelation is given to us so that we know God is in control. See, that's why the devil hates Genesis so much. And that's why the devil hates Revelation. In Genesis, his doom is pronounced. In Revelation, his, his doom is carried out. No wonder he perverts those books. He hates them both. So in honor of him, we're going to mention both of them today. Now, let, let me tell you four things. If you, here's step number one, get grounded in the written word of God. Get grounded in biblical prophecy. Let that be your foundation upon which you build. Open your heart to the prophetic gifting in the church so that we fulfill that command to not despise prophesying. Um, but don't be gullible. Don't think just because somebody says, thus saith the Lord, that they've heard from God. But I can tell you a way you'll know that you're profiting from prophecy. These four things will always accomplish the purposes of God. Here's number one. If I am going to get really into prophecy, I need to understand that prophecy produces four things. Here's number one. Prophecy always produces praise. It does not produce fear. It does not produce anger. It, I mean, it, and, it, and if it does, you're in the same boat as Jonah, you will find yourself being angry because God shows mercy to the people that you hate. No, it will produce praise. You say, well, just because I know prophecy, how, how, does, that, uh, how, how does that 
produce praise? Well, number one, it, it helps you understand the mystery of history. See, I, I look at the news and it's easy. R Ramona sets a timer when I turn the news on and I'm not allowed to watch more news than X number of minutes because it upsets me. But I tell you what prophecy does. Prophecy says, look at history, look at your world conditions, look all around you and understand this. I am in control. Now, it doesn't mean that God did everything. It doesn't mean that God wants everything that happens to happen. But God is in control. You need to put on your refrigerator 1115 from the book of Revelation. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. Thank you, Justin. That means everything from communism to fascism. Everything from Playboy to Amazon. Everything is coming under the lordship of Jesus. And some things will be set up. Some things will be pushed down. You've got to understand, loved ones, if you don't read Revelation, if you don't understand prophecy, you have nothing to hope for. You're in despair for your children. You're in despair for your grandchildren. You're afraid of the world that your great-grandchildren might face. But when you understand prophecy, it makes you understand this great mystery of history that God is going to make everything turn out right. It's not good. It's not right. But it will be. It will be. In 1989, a couple of weeks before Christmas, uh, December 16th, a rebellion started in Romania. Rebellions started all the time in Eastern European communist bloc countries, but seldom did they survive. Seldom did they last. This one began in uh, December 16, 1989. Romania had been declared the most atheistic nation on earth. That was their claim to fame. The most atheistic, godless religion-free nation on earth. And it happened that way because of Nikolai and Elena Ceausescu. They were heartless, godless dictators that said that their driving desire was to crush the semblance of God out of their nation totally. There were two churches in particular that had been singularly persecuted, their pastors, their membership, one of, uh, they were a couple of a very few handful of churches that dared meet in public. And on Christmas Day, 1989, Ceausescu and his wife were executed. The, the, the army of Romania changed sides and executed them. You can, you can watch it on YouTube. I don't invite you to. It's very grisly. But they were machine gunned to death. And just a few days later, the church that since the 1940s had been on a death watch. Every day they wondered if it would be their last day. So for 44 years, the church had labored under a crushing, withering oppression and both churches put up a sign in front of their building. There was no church sign there, but they put up a sign in front of their building and it said simply this, the lamb wins. The lamb wins wins. Wins. 
The lamb wins. See, they understood something that, that we Americans don't understand well. They understood that life can be ugly. Persecution can be devastating. Hard times can come and never seem like they're going to end. But when you understand Bible prophecy, you, it unravels that mystery. And you know that it may be tomorrow. It may be seven years from now. It may be in my great-grandchildren's day. But God is going to set everything right. The second thing that causes praise, not only do I understand that God's in control of history, I understand that God's in control of my suffering. Some of you are here today with suffering you can't understand. And the easiest thing to say is it's not fair. Well, anything to do with a sin-broken world is usually not fair. I'm not minimizing that. I'm, I'm, I'm not minimizing at all. The last year, I, you, you all know, I've, Tuesday's my brother's birthday and I lost him to COVID uh, last Christmas. It, it's not fair. It's not right. And I think of little ones that are lo uh, lost to COVID or, or sickness or just in general, the brokenness of the world. It, it, suffering does not make sense. But one of the most important decisions you and I will ever make, every one of us, is the decision of whether God is good or God is bad. You say, well, that's no problem, Pastor. We know God is good. Now, I'm not talking about just agreeing theoretically or intellectually. Can you really say, as the psalmist said in Psalm 119, God is good and everything he does is good? Or is God let me down? God's disappointed me. I put God on hold because of the way, the way he's treated me. And I may come back to him, you know, or, or I love Jesus, but I'm just mad with him right now. And we think that saying I love Jesus it makes anger and rebellion okay. But loved ones, at some point in time, I've lived long enough to know this. Life is not fair. Life is not always good. Now there's some good to life. There's some, there's some good people, but I want to tell you this, life is not fair, and this is a world of suffering, but you've got to decide, am I going to live my life with the assumption that God is good and he's working, all things work together for my good, or is God bad and can't be trusted? And if you take that approach, I guarantee you, you won't have to go long before you keep picking up offense after offense after offense. Because of the way God deals with things. Um, we need to put on our refrigerator along with Revelation eleven fifteen Romans 8, 18, where Paul said this. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that be revealed in us. Now, he, he was not just saying, well, the glory is going to be so much better than the suffering. No, it, it was a word of analysis. He said, my suffering, when I analyze this, my suffering is not even worthy to be in the discussion with what God's going to do. He's not saying, well, I've suffered a lot, but maybe heaven will outsqueak it just a little bit here. He says, take my suffering. And Paul had a lion's share of suffering and take what God has promised. He said the only way to look at this is take this out of the equation. 
It's all about the future. It's all about Him. It's all about glory. He will unravel the mystery of history and He will make sense of my suffering. And there's a third thing that will happen. He will help us understand justice, or maybe I should say injustice. In 1 Corinthians 4.15, I, I won't take time to read it today, but um, this is, well, let me say this in your notes. I just have Revelation there because Revelation is a story of everything being set right. In the early opening verses of Revelation, I think it's chapter 4, um, John wept because there was, a, there was a book that was sealed and it, it, it had to do, you know from the context, it had to do with the idea of everything being set right on the earth. And nobody in heaven was able to open the book. Nobody on earth was able to open the book. And John said, I wept because here's everything that needs to be set right. And nobody's able to open the book. Your mama can't, your daddy can't, the judge can't, the Supreme Court can't, the president can't. No king or potentate around the world. Nobody's able. The most noble Christian of all times are not able Paul was in heaven at that time when John had this vision. Peter was there. Just, un, just an uncountable to us number of saints were there. And nobody was worthy. <coughs> and John began to weep because he realized things will never be set right. Nobody can open the book. And the angel said to him, weep not, John. For the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed and he is able to open the book. Yeah. Loved ones, you can spend your life being angry at injustice and we need to be angry at injustice. But don't make other people's lives miserable and don't make your children's lives cursed. Don't let the injustice of this world make your life unbearable. Understand that the lion of the tribe of Judah in the future is going to set everything right. Well, you guys got to hurry. If you understand prophecy, you will find your life filled with praise because you understand history, you understand suffering, you understand injustice. If you fill your life with biblical prophecy, it will also produce prayer. When you read Bible prophecy, you'll understand that God says, I'm going to set everything right. We know that. You're going to understand that God says, I'm controlling everything. I set one king up. I set another king down. But you're going to understand that I want you to partner with me in setting everything right. Uh, in my prayer time for the last few months, Matthew 6.10 has become more and more important to me because it says your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I've prayed that since I was a preschooler. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And, and I understand what they're trying to do. I'm not trying to be critical, but we have a lot of people that say we ought to go around banishing every, if it's not in heaven, it ought not be in earth. I understand that. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, there's no sickness in heaven, so we ought to ban all sickness on earth. There's also no marriage in heaven. I mean, you, you got to take it in context. That's not a thing saying, eliminate everything on earth that's not 
found in heaven. We don't want to do that. I mean, we may want to do that, but we don't have the authority to do that. And I believe God is healer, all of that. Don't, I, I know it, I know it, I know it, I know it, I know it. But this is what he's saying. He's saying, this is your opportunity to join the, the, the uh, company of heaven in bringing the kingdom to earth. He wants to partner with us. For instance, in Psalm 122.6, I'm going to slow down just a minute here. I want you to get this. We know that God is going to bless Jerusalem. We know his hand is on Jerusalem. But he also says in Psalm 122.6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. He says, I want you to pray for what I've said I'm going to bring anyway. He, he gets real um, uh, uh, absolute here. And, and I think this is Ezekiel, not Exodus. I'm not sure. Um, I, I'm, I'm just showing my biblical illiteracy, I think. But I think this is, is uh, Ezekiel. This is what the Lord says. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed. I have replanted what was desolate. Listen to this phrase. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. It's going to happen regardless. I want you to know God is going to restore the land in spite of what the surrounding nations say, in spite of what the U.S. does or doesn't do. God is going to restore the land because I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. And then he gives one more dramatic proclamation. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Once again, I will yield to Israel's plea and do this for them. I will make their people as numerous as sheep. God said, I'm going to do it. But I want you to pray and I'm going to listen to your prayer and I'm going to do it because you pray. It's a mystery that we can't understand. But God has ordained there are things I'm going to do, but I invite you to be a part of this. Revelation 22, 20 is a good New Testament example of it. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. That means it's going to happen. I am coming soon. And how does the church respond? Come, Lord Jesus. Come. See, when you understand prophecy, you're going to be filled with praise. It's going to drive you to prayer. And thirdly, it is going to produce purity in your life. Dear friends, now we are the children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. We talk a lot about heaven and we're going to see this there, we're going to see that there and we, we do have some information about heaven. But heaven is literally beyond our understanding. We don't understand what heaven's really going to be like. We know it'll be good. But we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. So what does he say we should do about it? If you have this hope, Keep yourselves pure like he is pure. We know we're God's children, but we don't know much about what we will be like in eternity. But we know the best way to prepare is by living in moral and spiritual purity. This cheap grace teaching that's going around that once you come to Jesus, you never need to repent. You never need to have cleansing. It's a doctrine of demons. It's spawned from hell. I don't think that our works keep us secure. We're going to heaven because of the grace of God, but we better learn how to repent. 
We better learn how to walk in purity. It does make a difference how you live. Colossians, Paul wrote to them and said this, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's where you're going. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in this. That was your former life. But now you must also rid yourselves of such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. To those of you that want more prophecy, i got to declare, you know, the purposes and the plans of God. I want to tell you, I believe in declaration, but sanctification precedes. Sanctification trumps declaration. I'm amazed at how many Christians live any way they want to live and dare make proclamations in the name of the Lord. This is our prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. There was a Frenchman named Charles Blondin. In 1859, he walked a tightrope across Niagara Falls. It was the news of the year. He's walking a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Then he goes a step further. He puts his assistant in a barrel, a wheelbarrow, and pushes them ahead of him across Niagara Falls on the tightrope. And everybody is cheering. Everybody, he, he did it to himself. He did it to one of his assistants. Now he said, um, uh, uh, which one of you believe that I can... Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. He pushed the barrel across. And then he said, which one of you would be willing to get in the barrel and let me push you across? Nobody was willing to do that. But he got one of his assistants and pushed that, that person across in the barrel. But the long story short, somebody said, how do you do that? How do you walk a tightrope with all the noise, with the, with the water spraying up? How do you get from here to the other side? He said, I've done this every time I've ever walked a tightrope. He said, I put a silver star at where I'm going. And he said, the only way I can get from here to there is to never take my eyes off the silver star. He said, if I ever look down at the ground, I fall. If I ever look at the waterfall, I fall. He said, the only way I can keep my bearing is to keep my eye on the star. And loved ones, that may be a poor illustration, but it's a good example to let us know that the only way we can walk in purity, oh, we're going to heaven. I believe in the security of the believer, if you're a real believer. But the only way you're going to walk in purity is to keep your eye on the star because there will always be something to draw you aside. Now, here's the last thing. Is your life full of praise? It will be if you understand prophecy. Has prophecy driven you to prayer or complaining? If it's real understanding of prophecy, it'll drive you to prayer. If you really understand prophecy, it won't make you give up and quit. It will drive you to purity. But it will also 
produce proclamation in us. If a person understands prophecy, I, I want to tell you, can I be honest with you? Most, no, I won't say most, a lot of church leadership voices that I see online or that I listen to, most of them are so angry. They, they act like they're glad people are going to hell. They really do. They act like they're glad people are going to hell. They want governments to fail. They want judgment to come. But if I really understand prophecy, I want to shout a message of preparation. And I want to shout a message of the mercies of God. I want to shout a message of the mercies of God. This is what Revelation 19.10 says. For it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. For years, I wondered exactly what that meant. You know, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. In King James, it's a little convoluted to, to break down that sentence. But this is basically what it means. If you see testimony being given to Jesus, it's because the spirit of prophecy is at work. Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord through prophecy, we convince men. Loved ones, I know a lot of people that are mad with every institution, mad with every church. Some have even given up on the church. And they say, I'm just going to pull back and I'm just going to live to myself. But loved ones, I want to tell you, if, this is, if what's happening in America right now is not driving you to reach out to your lost loved ones, it's not driving you to reach out to your community, then I, I want you to understand you have not tapped into prophecy. The Spirit and the Bride say come. At the end of the greatest book of judgment in the Bible, this is how it ends. The Spirit is working, saying come. Come to the Lord. And this is the next thing. And the bride is working, saying, come, come to the Lord. Let one who hears say, come. In other words, when you come, tell others to come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life come. I was, I remember a story I read years ago somewhere out in the Rocky Mountain, Teton Mountain range, a group of four or five people were walking along and they cornered a little bear cub. A little bear cub was little. I don't know how old it was. I don't remember the details. But it was just little. It was, they, they, they called it a teddy bear. And they said, we can take this. They, you know, we, we can go up and pet this bear. We can do all these kinds of things. And the, and the bear was kind of frightened. And then all of a sudden, the bear stood up on its legs. It's just a little tiny thing. Stood up on its legs and started doing its paw and, you know, opened its mouth and roared. And they laughed at how feeble the roar was. They said, let's go touch him. We can, we can do this. We can do this. And that bear cub got more and more brave, you know, and... They said, we can take him. And it was at that moment that from about 15 feet behind them, they heard mama bear. You see, loved ones, we, 
we need to learn something from that little bear. We may not have strength sufficient to the days in which we face such trouble. We may think we can endure to the end, but when everything is jabbing at you, I guarantee you, if you'll give it just a little bit of time, the mama bear shows up. Jesus shows up. And you know what? I can get pretty bold when Jesus is in the room. Just like that baby bear, I can say, I have strength that I may grow into one day, but I'm not there yet, but somebody near me does have it. We're going to receive communion today. Loved ones, this is what I'm asking you to do. Will you lay aside might and power and invite the Holy Spirit to fill every nook and cranny of your life? Oh, there's a reason for rage. There's a reason for anger. There's a reason to hurt. There's a reason to say it's not fair. I'm not denying any of those things. I am not here to say, oh, buck up and be a man and don't worry about your suffering. No, your sufferings are real. Your insecurities are real. And, and by the way, if you don't have communion, I think our ushers are walking up and down the aisles to be sure you get one. Um, we're not minimizing your suffering, not at all. But I tell you, I tell you what we are doing. We are asking you to come to the Lord today and let His strength become your strength. <laughs>